Good morning. Wow, that was lame. <laughs> good, morning. good morning. Excellent, very good. I'm thrilled that you're here. I'm even more thrilled that uh, Randy remembered from the last time I preached that the little tiny thing that was way down here called a pulpit has now been replaced with something for a man of decent stature. Thank you, Randy. Um, I appreciate that very, very much. Very thoughtful, actually. I was very impressed. Um, if you have uh, a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, then uh, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you'll know that we have been traversing through this book of 1 Kings, and uh, we find ourselves in chapter 10 uh, this morning. 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, let me just say that as we look at this text together, I really only want to look at it under two headings. I want to look at God's reputation and then I want to look at Solomon's reputation. So even as we're reading the first 13 verses of uh, 1 Kings 10, you can be thinking along those lines, what do I see here that might make me think of God's reputation? What do I see here that would make me think of Solomon's reputation? Well, hopefully you found 1 Kings chapter 10 by now, and you can follow along as I read beginning at verse 1 through verse 13. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, or Hiram, depending on how you want to pronounce that, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So, he turned and went, so she turned and went back to her own land with her servants." Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look into your word that you would give us understanding. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. You would open, indeed, our hearts wide that we might receive you. We pray that what you have written down for us might become something that is written on our hearts, that it would become part of who we are. We ask the Lord that you would change us through the work of your spirit this morning. 
Lord, we do not come to this place to worship together just because it is Sunday morning. We come to this place to worship together, yes, because you have commanded it, but also because we have come with expectation that you will continue to transform us into your image and likeness, that we might be more like Jesus. And that is our heart's desire this morning, Father, that we would be more like Jesus. And to that end, we ask that you would work in our hearts now, in Christ's name. Amen. A friend of mine, who you will probably never meet, so I'll actually give his real name, Dennis, uh, years ago, probably and many, many years ago, in fact, so many years ago, it was the late 80s, early 90s, which for some of you seems like a lifetime ago. For some of you, you weren't even born yet, so <laughs> it's a really long time ago. He was at that time, he's done several things, but one of the things Dennis did during the late 80s and early 90s, he was a salesman for a golf apparel company. And this was, he was very successful. It was a huge golf apparel company, uh, and, and he was one of their most successful salesmen, making sales all over the country, traveling all over the place. But Dennis was a very good salesman, and he never wanted to be just satisfied with all the sales that he could always make. He always was looking, what new market could I break into? Where could we go to sell our apparel or merchandise somewhere else? And at that time, the late 80s, early 90s, Macy's was still an enormously influential department store, and he thought, we don't sell at Macy's. I'm going to go to Macy's. But he thought, I'm just not going to go to one store at Macy's and see if I can convince one store to, to, to uh, carry our merchandise. I'm going to go to the very head office in New York City, and I'm going to meet with the VP of merchandising, and, and, and I forget the guy's t actual title, but we'll just call him the VP of merchandising. I'm going to go and get a, an interview with him, an appointment with him, and I'm going to make sure that all of our stuff is sold in every Macy's store across the entire nation. This is not a man with small dreams. This is a man with huge dreams. So it took him months and months and months and months before he finally managed to get an appointment with this guy. And, and he, got, he got his appointment. He went there that day. And he's, he's in this uh, incredible, enormous office in the middle of, of New York. He's absolutely um, amazed by all of this. He walks in. He sits down. The man is very, uh, you know, uh, very, very uh, affable and, and easy to talk to. And after a bit of small talk, they sit down. And, and Dennis, my friend, begins to make his pitch. Five minutes into it, he's looking at this VP from Macy's thinking, oh no, this is not going well. <laughs> and he stopped and he said, do you have any questions? I, I'm just, I'm not getting the kind of response I was, I was looking for. And, and the guy said, well, Dennis, let me just cut you off right there. I can tell the way you guys are thinking about your merchandise and the way we think about merchandise is totally different. The way you think about sales and the way we think about sales is totally different. I'm not interested at all. Thank you for coming. Goodbye. Now, in that moment, Dennis had a decision to make. Dennis could have decided, double down. Oh, no, 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 I'm not going anywhere until I'm finished my presentation. <laughs> and he could have tried to just drive home the point that, no, you really could be. I mean, think of all the money, more money that you could make and all the rest of it. But Dennis didn't choose that path. Instead, in that moment, Dennis was intrigued. And, and he did something that, was, that we could all learn from, I think. He decided to take the road of humility. And he said, could you tell me just a little bit more about why you see this is so divergent and this would be so unsuccessful? I don't quite understand it yet. So the man began to explain it. After 20 or 30 minutes of the man talking and explaining and everything, Dennis realized this guy really knows his stuff. So then a whole new plan came into Dennis's mind and he said, I'd like to ask something from you. Forget about sales, forget about golf merchandise, forget about all that stuff. I'm not here as, as representing that company anymore. Now I'm standing before you as just Dennis. Would you allow me to make an, a monthly appointment with you for one year, 12 times, I'll come once a month, 12 times, and for just one hour, I wanna learn from you. 
I just want to sit at your feet. I just want to, I want to learn all that you've got. I want to ask you questions. I want you to sort of, we would say now, download. Late 80s, nobody knew what that meant. But anyway, I want you to tell me everything that you know, all that you've learned. Let me probe, let me ask, let me learn from you. And he said, in exchange, Dennis had done his homework. He talked to the guy's secretary. He discovered this guy really, really liked a very expensive kind of single malt whiskey. And he said, I will bring you one bottle every month of that really expensive whiskey that you love. He named it, the guy was impressed that he knew. That's all I'm asking, one year, 12 meetings, because I need to learn from you. Forget the sales. And the guy said, okay. Why don't we do this? Now, it's interesting to me that, that Dennis went in that direction. Why? Well, first of all, it was the direction of humility, right? He had to admit, you're better than I am. You know more than I do. And he had to lay down his own approach to things. But there are three ways in particular that I thought it was, as I thought about this, that Dennis was, uh, was, was shrewd and, um, and humble. First of all, he was going to have to reallocate his resources. Dennis was now going to have to spend his own money to fly up to New York once a month. He's going to have to stay at a hotel once a month. He's going to have to obviously go out and find food once a month. He was going to have to buy a very expensive bottle of whiskey once a month. He was going to have to reorganize how he organizes his whole every, every, uh, every month. He was going to have to reorganize, okay, well, I'm not doing that this weekend because I'm going to see this guy. I'm not doing that. I can't go here. I can't do that. He's having to reallocate his, his resources. He's having to accept new processes. He's going to have to admit that not everything I know about sales and merchandise is right. Some of it could be wrong. I'm going to have to figure out how to, how to accept new ways of thinking. And then he's going to have to realign his priorities, his time, what he loves to do, giving up some of the things that he loves to do in order to spend time with this man. Now, why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you this story because it resonated, at least for me, it resonated very strongly with what's going on here with the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. The Queen of Sheba had heard the report that Solomon was the wisest man on the planet and quite possibly the richest man who ever lived. The reports were absolutely fantastic. In that moment that she heard these, these stories, she could have done one thing. She could have said, oh, come on, these are just rumors, these are just reports, they're not true, forget it, whatever. Or she could have done what she did do. She could have decided, you know, I'm going to and as it is an act of humility, I'm going to humble myself, I'm going to go to this guy, I'm going to show up on his doorstep, I'm going to knock on his door, I was going to say, teach me. I've got questions. Can you answer them? That's a position of humility. That's a position of putting herself under Solomon. And so for her, she was going to have to reallocate resources in a huge way. As we read there, she brought more spices than anyone in the history of Israel had ever seen. And she just gave them away. She brought all kinds of precious goods and gifts, all of which she gave away at the end of it. She was seriously reallocating her resources. She was accepting new processes, that is to say, new ways of thinking. I mean, when you receive wisdom, that's going to challenge your own wisdom. When you receive new information, it's going to challenge the way you do things. She was going to have to accept new processes, new ways of, of living, and she was going to have to realign her priorities. She was, as she got through this whole process, she was going to have to, to realign her priorities in terms of believing and obeying God. Now, you may be saying in just that moment, wait, 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 hold on a minute. You just said realigning her priorities so as to believe and obey God. Where in the text does it say that she believed and obeyed God? Seems like she just showed up to say, hey, wisdom, or say, hey, Solomon, you got a lot of wisdom. I got a few riddles. Can you solve them? 
Seems that on the surface of it, she just showed up to say, I'm really curious, are you really the guy that everybody's talking about? I mean, are you that wealthy? Are you that wise? So how can I say, so glibly and just in passing, she had to realign her priorities such that she had to believe and obey God? How do I know that she went that far in her humility and change? Well, look at verse 1. There are, there are a number of clues here. I'm just going to highlight two. Look at verse 1 with me. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. Some translations say in relation to the name of the Lord, which I actually prefer. In relation to the name of the Lord. So again, when she heard of this fame of Solomon, but she didn't just hear the fame of Solomon, she heard of his fame in relation to, in concert with, alongside of the name of the Lord. In other words, the writer of 1 Kings here is actually trying to, to help you understand that the emphasis for the Queen of Sheba is not actually so much on the person of Solomon and his wisdom. The emphasis is that she's heard that the source of this wisdom, the source of this blessing, is in fact Almighty God, Yahweh, the living and true God. And that, for a pagan, has totally caught her attention. So what she's doing is she has not just come to, to Israel to seek to know Solomon. She has come to Israel to, as it were, test and see the Lord's greatness. Is it true that your wisdom is actually connected to the name of the Lord? Is it true that your blessing and your riches are coming from this one who you claim is God of all? In other words, it's natural for us in the way that the writer has put together 1 Kings 10.1, it's natural to understand the Queen of Sheba's intent is to engage Solomon as a way of coming to terms with God. Are you the true God? Because the, and the way she's going to do this is to test God's servant. In other words, Solomon is a representative of God to the Queen of Sheba. She sees Solomon and sees an opportunity. I'm going to go and use his, this man, the one God has apparently invested with wisdom and blessing and riches and so forth. I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to see if it's really true. And the quality of the man that I meet in Solomon will tell me something of the nature and the quality of the God he claims to worship. That's what's going on here as we read 1 Kings 10.1. And even just reading 1 Kings 10.1 and understanding it in that way, we already have, I think, a fairly clear point of application. That is to say that God's fame, God's reputation in the world resides with his people. It resides with his people. And when the world becomes curious enough, when the world becomes interested enough to test and investigate God's reputation through us, the question we need to be asking is, what is the outcome? In other words, I'll put it another, a different way for you. We could ask this question, what is God's reputation to those that you know? As you go about life, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's with your family, whether it's with your neighbors, whoever it might be, what is God's reputation because of what they see in you? So I thought about this question. I remember years ago as a teenager, one summer, every summer I'd get a, a summer job and, and um, 
this one summer was no different. And uh, the job that I got that particular summer was a job that came because of a connection my father had with another business. And the first day of work, I got up, I'm ready to go, about to leave. My father sits down with me. I knew, I knew something was up because my father was a, a very early riser. I'm a very late riser. <laughs> but I was about to leave, and it was, I was going to be leaving, I don't know what time, it would have been 7.38. Normally, he was long gone to work. He was still in the home. I knew something was up. I usually assumed this meant I was in trouble. But the reason he'd stayed is because he wanted to talk to me before I left, and he sat me down. He said, before you go, I just want to say something to you. The way in which you work for the rest of this summer for this company will reflect on me. So please do a good job. And I said, no, being the all-knowing teenager, no. <laughs> you don't understand, Dad. It'll reflect on me. And he said, no, you don't understand. My reputation is on the line because I'm the one who has vouched for you. I'm the one who has raised you. I'm the one who has guided you to this point in your life. I'm the one whose name is on the line. What you do in this job for these next two and a half months will mean something for the rest of my relationship with this, this business. Well, thanks for the heavy one, Dad. I appreciate that as I go to work. But he wasn't wrong. His reputation was tied up with me. And it's no different. It's obviously a much grander scale, but it's no different with God. We are his, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are his ambassadors. We are the ones who represent God. Solomon was representing God. The Queen of Sheba knew this. So what, what is God's reputation to those that you know? And furthermore, how well do you represent God when unbelievers seek him through you? When they, when they decide, you know, I'm curious enough to know why you're different or why something is the way it is, what is the answer that they get? Now, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, but, I mean, I'm no Solomon. I mean, the analogy really starts here with Solomon, doesn't it? I mean, Solomon was all wise. I am not all wise. Solomon was ridiculously wealthy. I am not ridiculously wealthy, or indeed wealthy. I mean, there's, maybe there's no connection here. But you see, it's not about how wise Solomon was or how rich Solomon was. The issue is, did Solomon's profession match his practice? And the degree to which his profession matched his practice is the degree to which the Queen of Sheba was going to understand the greatness of the God that he worshiped. And that's the same for all of us. Does our, does our profession match our practice? As I thought about this, I was reminded of uh, another friend of mine who he and his wife have a daughter and a son, and, and their son, not to put too fine a point on it, but he has been the biggest challenge they have ever faced in their life. Behaviorally, this poor kid is a massive, massive mess. And they have done everything in their power to help this young man as he's, he's still a teenager. Several years ago, they heard of a place, it's basically a working farm, that they could send, troubled boys could be sent to. And basically, they live there for a year. They still do their schoolwork and all the rest of it, but they're also on a working farm, and they're not allowed one iota of electronic media. And basically, these, these guys live with them, and they, all these, all these boys, and, and their job is to help them along the way to begin to understand how to behave well, how to, how, I mean, it's a Christian organization, what the gospel means and so forth to change their lives. Well, anyway, they sent their boy here, and, and they're not, once, the, once you send your son to this place, you're actually not allowed to uh, call or have any contact except on a schedule. 
mean, these, this is for kids who are like at the very end. So one, one, after, one, one uh, weekend, one afternoon, they're there. They're allowed to go see their son, and they're talking to their son. They're amazed at the transformation that's taking place in their son. But as they're talking, that my friend was talking, the husband was talking to the guy who runs the place, and as he was talking to him, he, heard, he saw this other guy who worked way out in the field, and above the sound of the tractor and above the sound of everything else that was going on, he, he, what caught his attention was this guy was singing hymns and songs at the top of his lungs, and probably not very well. <laughs> but he was bellowing it all out. And my friend said, well, that, that guy, that's, that's something. <laughs> he just didn't know what to do with that. And the man who, who ran the, the, uh, the, this, this farm said, well, yeah. And he said, that's a guy whose life has been completely and utterly transformed by God. That man has come out of drugs, alcohol, sex, crime, you name it. His story would curl your hair. And then he found Jesus. And all he wants to do for the rest of his life is invest in other young men who were in the same place that he was and tell them and show them the love of Christ. And what these boys see when they come here, he's just one example, what they see is a man who says, Jesus has utterly transformed my life. He has taken a hold of my heart, and he is doing things that I could never accomplish and the world couldn't imagine. And he said the wonderful thing is that after he tells them this, he then goes out, and as they work with him, they discover no matter what arena he's in, no matter what he's doing, that man cannot get over the fact that Jesus died for him. And they see a man whose profession matches his practice. They see a man who's willing to spend the rest of his life with almost no money, just living out in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, for what purpose? To help kids nobody else knows what to do with. To help kids who come off the street and they don't know where else to go. That's his whole life. But you see, you don't need to be as wise as Solomon. I don't think that guy was as wise as Solomon. He certainly wasn't as wealthy as Solomon. You don't need to be somebody who lived a life of all kinds of, of moral indiscretions and problems and sin in the deepest possible way to speak to someone. No, you just need to be the sort of person who when you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and he is changing my life moment by moment, day by day from glory to glory, when they come and see your life, when you invite them into your home, when you invite them into your life, when you sit down and have coffee with them, they begin to see you're the real deal. What you say matches how you live. And when that happens, there's all sorts of blessing because God is being glorified in your life. But you see, the Queen of Sheba not only came to Solomon because she'd heard that the Lord was at work in his life. That's one of the, the first hint that something more spiritual is going on here than just a kind of testing. The second thing we see is in verse 9. After she's seen everything, she's absolutely blown away. We see there in verse 5, there was no more breath in her. But then what does she say in verse 9 as a summary statement? Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. What is the, after she's blown away, what does she say? One of the first things she says is, blessed be the Lord your God. 
She doesn't say, blessed are you, Solomon. He is blessed. But she wants to tie this to the very core of what's going on. Blessed be the Lord your God. In other words, how wonderful are you and all those who get to to hear this wisdom day after day. But the reason it's wonderful is because the Lord your God is blessing you. In other words, the Queen of Sheba came because of God's reputation, and then she saw by faith God's work in this king and people. You may say, well, I don't know if that really means that she was converted, that she began to believe in the Lord. Well, I know that the answer is it absolutely is yes, because I can cheat. I can go to the New Testament, the answer book of the Bible. And some of you who know the New Testament well might know that in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 42, Jesus is speaking, and he has just had a whole group of people say, give us a sign. Why should we believe you? Who are you anyway? And there's a whole answer he gives, and at the very end of his answer, he says, the queen of the south, Sheba simply means south, so it's the same person, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The only reason that the Queen of Sheba should ever rise in the resurrection is because she has eternal life, because she trusted in God. The only way she could possibly sit in condemnation over others, the others being those who've rejected Jesus at this point in his ministry, is because she herself stands with God. She herself has become a believer. And Jesus goes on to say, For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, she believed on the basis of just Solomon. You Pharisees, you scribes, you unbelievers actually have the Son, the second member of the Trinity incarnate standing before you delivering the truth and you refuse to believe. How much greater was she who believed, who just had Solomon? Now something is greater here, and you still won't believe. Jesus has given testimony to the fact that the Queen of Sheba came to faith in God and his salvation. And in Jesus, there is now one greater than Solomon. So really what's going on, when we tie 1 Kings 10, 9, To Matthew 12, 42, the question is no less poignant for you and me. We, in all of Scripture, we in the Gospels and the Pauline epistles and all that we have in in the Old and New Testaments, we have now access to an understanding of the one who is greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. And the question is, Who of us who has seen the one who is greater than Solomon, who of us has believed? Have we believed? Have you believed? You see, 1 Kings 10 isn't just about a story about a queen who's really impressed. Man, you're rich and you're awesome. 1 Kings 10 is a story that says, will you stand with the queen of Sheba who went from being a pagan who didn't know God to meeting the one who represented God and saying, yes, I must believe because this is the way of truth and righteousness and life. You see, that's God's reputation in 1 Kings 10. And then very briefly, we also see something of Solomon's reputation here in 1 Kings 10 and also in a few other places. It's kind of interesting. Solomon's life is fascinating if you think about it as a whole. And it's actually kind of a, the the question of Solomon's reputation is actually a little bit vexed. It's a little bit mixed. I mean, there's the good sign, right? 
If you've been with us, you'll remember this. Uh, if you don't, let me just give you a very 30-second short outline here. In chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Kings, we saw that Solomon was anointed as king. He was advised by his father. He followed through on that advice, and his kingdom was established. All good. Chapter 3, we see that Solomon is faithful to God, and he wants to follow God, and so God gives him all this wisdom and even more blessing because Solomon asked for a heart that hears. He asked essentially, Lord, let me be the one who is always listening to your word. Then in chapters 4 through 7, we see that the worldwide fame of Solomon grow. We see the temple built and the, the king's palace built. In chapters 8 and 9, we see the temple dedicated with all manner of divine blessing. Chapter 10, of course, we witness uh, our, our witnesses to his, his health, or sorry, his wealth and his wisdom. Everything looks like, in one sense, it looks like it's all going really, really well. And then we hit chapter 11. And I'll leave that for a future week to cover, but you'll notice there in chapter 11, verse 1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And then in chapter 11, verse 6, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Verse 9, and the Lord was angry with Solomon. Suddenly, it seems, his life just ends. I mean, the amazing thing to me about Solomon's life is 1 Kings 1 through 10 looks pretty positive. Then 1 Kings 11, he loved all these other women. Then essentially, 1 Kings 11, he loved these women. He got involved in idolatry and he dies. Boom, done. 1 Kings 12, we're on to another king. 10 chapters and then his whole life comes to a crashing end in one, chapter 11. This is crazy. What in the world's going on? But you see, if we look at Solomon's reputation again, we see there's a bit of a mix here. You see, in chapter 1, yes, he was declared king and he was anointed king, but if when you go back and read chapter 1, you discover Solomon does virtually nothing to become anointed the king. When his brother tries to take over, other people have to say, hoi, hoi, stop, stop, no, no, you're not supposed to be the king, Solomon's supposed to be the king. Solomon doesn't stand up for himself. At the very beginning of his reign, he looks a little bit apathetic. He looks honestly a little bit lame. He, a king is supposed to be somebody who stands up and says, this is what the Lord has proclaimed, this is what my father David has said, and we will follow in that way. Solomon doesn't do that. Then in chapter 3, Solomon marries an Egyptian woman, and Deuteronomy is very clear. Kings of Israel are not supposed to marry outside of Israel, but that's what he does early in his life. In chapter 9, he's making these agreements with Hiram, and Hiram gives him, is another, another uh, great man, and Hiram sends all kinds of, of gifts to, to, to Solomon, uh, all kinds of wood, all kinds of gold, all kinds of wonderful things. And Solomon says, thanks, you know, in exchange, I'm going to give you 20 cities or 20 towns. And Hiram says, fantastic, thank you so much. And then Hiram goes and visits these towns, and they're the most pathetic, lame, ridiculous cities he's ever seen. Solomon gives him junk. Not exactly a great way to show gratitude. Then we see that about other things going on here. Here in chapter 10, I think it's interesting that it's out of the lips of Queen Sheba that we hear, blessed be the Lord God. How long is it since in 1 Kings have we heard on the lips of Solomon him say, blessed be the Lord my God? It's been a long time. Then at the end of chapter 10, we see that he uses all the wealth 
for himself. After we, the first 13 verses, of course, are, are the exchange between he and Queen of Sheba. Then, and we'll look at this next week with Zach in chapter, verses 14 through the end, we see all this incredible wealth. What does he use it for? He uses it for himself. He doesn't use it to alleviate poverty. He doesn't use it to deal with people who are in need. He doesn't set up any kind of you know, system of how it is people can, can, can get out of bad situations. No, he uses it all for himself. And then, of course, chapter 11, there's idolatry, and God is angry. Then there's judgment, and then he dies. In other words, what are we seeing with Saul here, or Solomon? We're actually seeing that Solomon is just like you and me. He is a mix of consistency and failure. His life is one in which there are seeds of future problems, but he doesn't always address those and get rid of those, like weeds in a garden. It's really interesting, isn't it, that Solomon enjoys tremendous blessing. Throughout the entire 11 chapters of 1 Kings, the first 11 chapters, God is utterly faithful and is consistent in his faithfulness. But we see throughout the narrative with Solomon, there are times of consistency. We've seen one of them here with his wisdom, but there are times of inconsistency. There are times in which he is utterly sold out for God and he prays and he desires God more than anything else. And there are times when his heart is led astray and he desires more women than any one man should have. There are times when he is worshiping God regularly and he's, at the, he, he's there and he's offering sacrifices at the altar as he ought to and there are times when he goes after other gods and he builds other altars. Solomon permits those little slips in his life and he doesn't address them. He is going through what some would call a slow fade. And I think this is the other side of this story here in 1 Kings 10. The text is asking you, saying to you, here's the story of Solomon's life. And it's asking us, how goes the writing of the story of your life? As the story of your life is being written, is it a story where there is consistency or is it a story where there is inconsistency? Is it a story of victory or is it a story of failure? And you may be sitting there thinking, well, you know what, preacher? I can already feel all the failures coming right back. I know them all. Thanks so much for destroying my Sunday. <laughs> but I want to say something to you there. The one problem with Solomon is when we see these failures, we don't see him ever turning back to God in repentance and renewed faith. That's the difference. You see, the story of your life is not about, oh, failure after failure after failure after failure. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of God, if you're the one who wants to live for him, and if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then actually your life is not failure, 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 failure. Your life is redemption, forgiveness, restoration, recreation over and over and over again. Don't ever stop living in the presence of forgiveness and recreation and redemption. Don't let Satan use failure against you and don't become dull to sin by repeating it again and again without responding in repentance and trust in God. Draw on his word. Come near to the Lord in prayer. Use the resources that are right around you. And by that, I mean other people. There's a reason the Lord has given us a church so that we might be an encouragement to one another. Well, let me draw this to a close here. I'll draw it to a close by going to where we first started. Go back to Dennis. Remember Dennis? Salesman goes to Macy's. 
You may wonder, well, what happened after the 12 months? What happened after all those meetings? What happened after all that whiskey, which he did not drink? I guess the other guy did, I don't know. What happened? What happened was they became friends, and the VP of Macy's, at, towards the end of their time, said to Dennis, you know what, now that we've talked and now I've seen who you are and now I see how you've learned, I would love for us to carry your merchandise in every store across the country. Dennis didn't ask for it. The man asked for it. You see, by humbly submitting to another, Dennis received more than he could ever hope for. Dennis received a new friend. Dennis received a new mentor. Yes, Dennis received massive sales, but Dennis also grew in humility and newfound wisdom. The Queen of Sheba, she humbly submitted herself not just to Solomon, but to the God who gave Solomon his wisdom. And when she submitted herself to Solomon and therefore submitted herself to God, she received more than she could ever have imagined. She received not only the wonder of all this insight and wisdom, but because of what we read in Matthew 12, we are absolutely certain she received eternal life. More than she could have hoped for. Well, how much more when we humbly submit to Jesus, the one who is greater than Solomon, do we receive more than we could ever imagine? We receive the Holy Spirit who will dwell in us and never leave us nor forsake us. We receive the mind of Christ. We receive, uh, we receive eternal hope. We receive new life. This text is part of the grand story of Scripture that is asking and begging the question, are you submitting to the Lord who is God in the person of Jesus Christ? If you're here this morning and you have never submitted yourself to this God, do not let this wisdom pass you by. And if you're one who has already submitted to this God in Jesus Christ, is there a consistency and a growing consistency in your faith and practice? How is the story of your life progressing? And always, as you think about the story of your life being written, Always turn to God's mercy. Always turn to his forgiveness. Always turn to the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the story of your life will be one that ends with that wonderful statement, well done, good and faithful servant. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be good and faithful servants. I pray that each one here this morning would be a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ. But Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet turned to Jesus, I pray that they would do so. And for Lord, those of us who have turned to Christ already and are following him, I pray that our lives would grow ever more consistent in our profession matching our practice. And Lord, I pray against the devil that he would not be the one to entice us to eternal doubt and despondency. And pray. Instead, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who shun him, turn away from those temptations for darkness, and we would turn to the light again and again and again. And in doing so, Father, we would see, we would love, we would appreciate, we would know, we would bask in the glorious redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. For him, we give you thanks, O oh God, and we pray that you would continue to lead us and guide us. And we pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.